I'm Julie. And this is the Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. Where two Catholic friends talk about the books and movies they love and the traces of the one reality that lie below the surface. Yes. And this one is more reality than usual. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, since I picked it, uh-huh. uh, you'd think I wouldn't be sound surprised by that, but there you go. <laughs> Yeah, you did know what was in this book, I hope. Uh, yes, I did. I'd read it. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. It's 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 a memoir, really. You know, uh, uh, J.D. Vance's memoir, his growing up. And he starts off saying, I'm so young, it's crazy that I'm doing a memoir because he's in his 30s or something. And he's like, but, of course, this person has lived so much of what most of us don't see in his mm. life. By the time he got there, that um, he felt like he needed to let people know about it. And I think that was a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, The subtitle is A Memoir of a Family and Culture in Crisis. Mm. So I think he he did a good job with that subtitle. (laughs) Because it is very descriptive of what's in here. Um, So (laughs) he's talking not only about his personal um, experience with his family, but also the culture from which he came. Yes. And so the culture he's talking about, he calls them hillbillies. Mm -hmm. They're largely based, rooted in the Appalachians, and they may have spread to other places like Ohio, looking for work, you know, when the auto industry was big or there and various places, steel industry and all these spots. But the culture remains unchanged. They kind of largely remain apart from what we would consider average middle America, maybe you would call mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. And because they're white and part of this unique culture that doesn't seem to really get recognized the way he sees it from the inside, he felt like he had some insights to a group of people that are ignored a lot of the time. And so we're talking about um, Kentucky, really, right? So he, mm-hmm. uh, Kentucky is where he was from, but Ohio is where he spent most of his time. <laughs> so yeah. it, it was really in between those two places, right? So the Appala- Appalachians are in Kentucky, but the um, Middletown, Ohio, is um, says the, mm-hmm. lar- the third largest city in the Cincinnati metropolitan area. Yeah, and so this is about his experience growing up with, um, without a father, really, or with a series of changing fathers as his mother would uh, marry, divorce, and remarry. And she's, uh, this. I don't think there's any, a lot of secrets in this book, but I mean, mm-hmm. she's um, got a real addiction problem. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't have consistent parenting. He and his sister, his sister kind of helps raise him. And his really stable people in his lives are his mother's parents, Mama and Papa, they call them, who themselves, he tells stories about when they were young, were extremely unstable, but somehow got to the point where they could recognize where they'd failed their own children and were trying to help the grandchildren not have that same experience which is the way he himself describes their role in his life. And so it's about him having to grow up in just, it's funny, it's extreme poverty, 
but it's poverty in a way that you don't think about in terms of slums Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because they're living in regular neighborhoods. He's kind of going from the inside. Here's what it was. Right. And I think that that's important. Yeah. When I, when I was, after I read the book, you know, I'm looking it up and seeing that there's been a little controversy of, you know, people pushing back at, at the book. But one of the things that they say is, well, this is really stereotypical. But I find that that's, that's a strange thing to say because he's, he's telling about his own life. <laughs> and this is me growing up as I grew up. And here's what I've learned from that. Um, and um, so, yeah, so to, to say that it's stereotypical, uh, I, don't know, I don't know what to say to that uh, they said criticism. It's perpetuating stereotypes. And I'm like, yeah. but if something – Well, here's the thing about stereotypes. You don't want to take stereotypes and generalize them to everyone. I think that's the thing um, that we all know where it's like some stereotype and nobody looks any deeper than this flip comment that categorizes people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the stereotypes themselves do come from observed behavior a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Maybe nobody's looked deeper to see what's the cause of all that, but – that behavior is there. Otherwise it wouldn't be a stereotype. You know, it's not that people went, I don't like these people. I'm going to make this thing up about them. They're going to go, I see them doing this all the time. So anyway, so it's like any kind of stereotype that you might think of for any group. And I, I don't even want to bring them up. The culture we're in today, you bring up a stereotype (laughs) instantly. You're assumed to have embraced it. It's a strange environment we're in. I mean, we're all being put into groups all the time and there's this Uh identity thing going on where, you know, uh, what is your list of identities is almost like a question right. that's asked of you. I mean, we're practically at that point, it feels like. Yet at the same time, we can't, we aren't making generalities. I mean, uh, yeah. uh, stereotypes and all that are bad. At the same yeah. time, we're all put in groups. It's just, it's, the, it's, it's a no-win situation. <laughs> right. They're putting us in the group and then canceling people. Mm. Well, okay, let me just take one that seems to me pretty innocuous, and mm. I'm part of this group. So, Catholics would, would shorthand for them a while ago was mackerel snappers. <laughs> well, because they would eat fish on Friday. Right, right. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that, that, you know, that doesn't bother me. I think it's funny, actually. Oh, yeah, it doesn't bother me either. But, yeah, mm-hmm. so, but that's the thing where, oh, those mackerel snappers. And, you know, I guess you could take that the wrong way if you're grouping it together and being super negative, which would be one thing. But it was convenient shorthand a lot of the time. But to say I'm perpetuating a stereotype when I look back into why did Catholics eat fish on Friday? What is, you know, what kind of fish did they eat? What are the, the habits and customs that come from it? Based on my lived experience, that's not perpetuating stereotype. That's explaining something deeper that no one knew. And I think that's what he's doing in this book. Yeah, and I would agree. And I think it's important that the aspect that this is his lived experience. Um, yeah. Then he he goes on from that Um to discuss what could possibly help from his experience, mm-hmm. um, poverty. And right. I think that some of his conclusions were unpopular. Um, and that was where a lot of the pushback comes in. But what it is, is it's a really a place from which to have a conversation in, in my opinion. Um, so what, what he's doing is he's saying, here's my lived experience Here's what I feel that I've learned from that experience, and uh-huh. this is what I think I know about poverty now. 
um, and in his culture, right? In his yeah. specific culture. So people could criticize that. Um, that's fine, you know, but, but it's really, they do need to confront it. It's like this, this is my lived experience. Um, so whatever solution you have ought to fit what I've lived. Yeah. And, and to just say this is perpetuating stereotypes means what is it about somebody who can't look deeper? For example, um, my book club read this, this is where I encountered it. And, um, the, somebody came to the book club who was furious about this book. I mean, just furious. And I don't think I realized until that point, um, she may have grown up in poverty. I don't know. Um, she didn't really talk about it, but she had a visceral reaction that was way out of proportion to disagreeing with concepts of the book. And at the same time in the conversation, because we were all just going, whoa, whoa, hold on. Um, because her problem was with um, the fact that this boy's parents or JD's parents mm-hmm. um, at one point had a lot of money from the jobs they're working, but they blew it as soon as they got it. They'd buy expensive cars. They'd buy all this stuff. But at the end of the day, they would be hugely in debt and, everything would be taken away and they'd have nothing. And she's like, they weren't poor. They had all this stuff. And we're like, but see, that's part of the, the way the poor act. And another person who I didn't realize um, had a a kind of a similar history, but had lived in more of um, an environment where because of the neighborhood she was in and all this sort of thing would, was able to say, on the surface, we looked like we had money. Underneath, we had nothing. And we also had uh, real serious family problems going on, similar mm. to kind of the sorts of things that were in this book. And so she was trying to have the discussion based on her lived experience also. Mm-hmm. And But this other person who has um, codified a lot of the beliefs of some of the people that I saw who were protesting against the book just couldn't grasp it that way yeah and it's this these preconceptions where i think what this book was trying to do is break through some of those preconceptions because i remember being surprised when he was saying you know i read this book by this person and who'd drawn various conclusions where he's like yeah yeah that's exactly my experience and this is kind of what i'm learning and he goes and then he'd go oh but this was written for an african-american audience by an african-american and he went oh we are sharing experiences across cultures that I didn't realize. Mm. And that's where he's like trying to open the conversation and going, let's look at what people's lived experiences are instead of just lumping us into these stereotypical groups and throwing the same thing at them over and over. Um, He's not making that conclusion in a huge way, but he brings up stuff like that, that I think um, the book's asking you to just kind of take it for what it is and break out of those stereotypes. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that, you know, especially about um, poverty, you know, um, mm-hmm. which is a, it's a hard, right. it's a hard thing to talk about, you know, and he's just saying, well, this is where I came from and here's my story. And yeah. then in there, he actually talks about, there are asides where he's breaking out of um, the uh, narrative and talking mm-hmm. about, you know, this is what I've noticed about this, you know, so a thing that 
uh, an incident uh, that he describes is he's working at a grocery store, um, has no money, and he's trying to get himself through uh, like Ohio State or something. Mm-hmm. And um, a, a person that's using food stamps is sitting there talking on an iPhone. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, but that that's just an experience that he had and, and how he he felt at that moment. It's like, well, I'm doing all this stuff. Why why am I doing it this way when I could just get food stamps and, and get an iPhone? <laughs> you know, right. um, so so he's just saying, you know, there, there, there are things that the government can do that perpetuates the problem. And I think that that's what he's asking us to think about. Right. Um, and it's funny because early on he's talking about an experience of uh, – talking is somebody in his family who just won't will say oh no this is how we are and this is how it is mm-hmm. and he says my people essentially deal with uncomfortable truths by avoiding or pretending better truths exist and i was like and that's almost kind of the reaction that you feel like when people are going this perpetuates um stereotypes i'm like but these are the truths what are we avoiding or pretending is better yeah. What if we just look at what's there? Um, right. It's just part of this difficult, difficult conversation. Right. You know? Right. So, so his life is, um, it's funny. He wrote it in a really good way that it's difficult. A lot of it's difficult, but he wrote it in such a way that I never felt drawn into it to the point where I myself was miserable or uncomfortable so that I couldn't read it. Hmm. He allowed you to keep me. He allowed to keep a little distance from it. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. He would, he would say, um, some shocking things. Um, but still, you know, it was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he, yeah. he, he was living in a pretty tough environment. I mean, he, his, like you said, his, um, his parents, well, his mom, you know, was, uh, a drug addict, you know, she mm-hmm. had, she had all kinds of addictions and his, his dad wasn't around and, uh, they, allowed someone to adopt him. Right. I mean, um, and he was raised by grandparents whose relationship was weird too. And (laughs) having these blowout fights right in front of him as a young kid. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then he got his sister and, and through all this, you know, somehow, um, he ended up going to Ohio state and Yale law school, (laughs) you know? Um, and I, I just think that that's a really, that's a really cool story. And he, he actually says in here that, um, I I guess if I, if I say the main thing that I got out of here Mm -hmm. is the power of the individuals in other individuals lives. Yes. Right. The, the, the fact that he says, I was able to move on out of this perpetual thing because I had people that were taking care of me. You know what I mean? Yes. It, um, so he actually said that it, it was it was a um, uh, uh, how did he put it? He he said it was against it was against what what was happening in his culture. He was able to kind of go against that. Um, yeah. So here here's the quote. In other words, despite all of the environmental pressures from my neighborhood and community, I received a different message at home, and that just might have saved me. Right. So he, he was right. like, that, that had to do with his grandpa. Um, uh, it was a story that he was telling about doing math in, uh, in school. And I think it was elementary school. 
Yeah, and I loved he was, that story. Yeah, and he was um, he. You were supposed to write down uh, – uh, the teacher would give you a number and you were supposed to write down a math problem that resulted in that number. And he would take pride in trying to give the a complex one you know, to do that. And then somebody bested him, right, and got two uh-huh. pieces of candy or something like that because he did a multiplication. And uh, J.D. Vance, the author, didn't even know what multiplication was. So he came out dejected thinking he was extremely stupid. Um, he he didn't realize the difference between, um, you know, ignorance and stupidity, right? He, he didn't right. know math or multiplication, and therefore he thought he was stupid. Um, right. And his grandpa lifted him right out of that mindset and said, all right, let's do this. You know, we're going to teach you multiplication right now. And um, lifted him right out of that, right, uh, that mindset. Right. So. But he, but he, uh, J.D. Vance's point is that the he felt that the the culture that he was in would pull him down and say, um, yeah, it's kind of pointless. There's really this whole multiplication thing is something that uh, is just too hard, and um, you know, it's like a learned helplessness kind of a thing. That's and he talks about that. Yeah, he does. He he, he uses that exact term. So, but, but that's what his culture would teach him to do is yeah, just say, well, yeah, you can't do Don't it. So try. there's really no reason to do that. Whereas at his home, even as difficult as it was, they were like, okay, this is, this is how you get ahead. You work hard. Um, let me show you how to do this. You know? Yeah. Cause he, he was saying, um, that what he saw was his grandparents who he's like, you know, they had, they were, my home was rife with problems and their relationship was too. And he goes, but they embodied one type, old fashioned, quietly faithful, self-reliant, hardworking. My mother and increasingly the entire neighborhood embodied another consumerist, isolated, angry, distrustful. Mm-hmm. And he says, there were and remain many who lived by my grandparents' code. Sometimes you saw it in the subtlest of ways. The old neighbor who diligently tended her garden, even as her neighbors let their homes rot from the inside out. The young woman who grew up with my mom, who re- returned to the neighborhood every day to help her mother navigate old age. And that's when he says, I'm not trying to romanticize it, but people did find out a way to get through it. And he always straddled both of those. And he says, thanks to his grandmother, he never saw the worst of what, or never saw only the worst of what the community offered. Hmm. And he believed it saved him. And he said, um, so an example was that his uh, grandmother agreed to watch his cousins one day. And he, um, they got dropped off at 10 and he had to go in at 11 to work at the grocery store and he loved these kids and he wanted to play with them. And he could only play with them for about 45 minutes and he was devastated and he wanted to quit work or stay home that day, essentially. And he said, he told his grandmother that he said, instead of telling me to quit your damn whining, like I expected, she only told me she wished I could stay home too. It was a rare moment of empathy But if you want the sort of work where you can spend the weekends with your family, you've got to go to college and make something of yourself. That was the essence of Mama's genius. She didn't just preach and cuss and demand. She showed me what was possible, a peaceful Sunday afternoon with the people I loved and made sure I knew how to get there. Hmm. Yeah. 
And within the best of her ability, she did. I remember them talking about puzzling over, was it college entrance papers yeah, where right. they both couldn't figure them out. Yeah. Yeah. But she was trying. Yeah, she was trying. And um, right. And just, just looking at, you know, I, that's something that I never really considered, you know. So that was something that I, I took away from this book is, um, yeah, I mean, if you have families that don't have a history of going to college, <laughs> um, that whole thing's got to be a complete mystery. Um, yeah. It, that, that's just a, a, of course, it's an of course moment, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's just got to be a complete mystery, you know, these questions that they ask you and how to get, you know, a student loan or a Pell Grant or, or anything like that. What does all that mean? Um, so, yeah. And then there was also the thing that impressed me, too, was his time in the Marines, where mm. I know that the Marines teach you, you know, um, discipline and self-discipline. And um, he said they also turn taught him trained learned willfulness as opposed to the learned helplessness like i can make a difference i can change things the things i do make a difference right in my life and in others and then he was talking about how he was going to go get a loan for a car and um he just was told some incredible like 20 percent interest or something Yeah, yeah and his uh I guess his commanding officer is like, nope, so-and-so, you go down with him to this place. <laughs> uh-huh. And he goes, this is the kind of thing you can haggle over. And that had never occurred to him. He'd never been part of the financial didn't system. Didn't know, yeah. Yeah, and mm-hmm. they said he said, that's the thing about the Marines. They knew the people coming in didn't know all kinds of things about how to successfully navigate the world in that way. And I thought, wow, I, I didn't ever think about it. And, and I think you hear this about all kinds of the, all the armed forces, if that's what they're called, I think Um, they all will help you learn to be a whole person in society in that way. Right. You know, here's how you dress under these circumstances. I mean, not for college as we discover later, but Mm -hmm. for the world, how to get alone. Yeah. How to get along with other people. Right. How to follow order. How to be part of a team. That whole decision to go to the Marines instead of college. That was yeah. a really interesting decision. And then that in the Marines, they there was classes that people took on all that stuff that you just described. Yeah. You know, how to do a checkbook, how to how to yeah. get a bank account. Um, yeah. Really interesting. I didn't know yeah, about that stuff. Yeah. And they don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's plenty of things. They could just take them, use them up as soldiers, and move on. But they're looking at the whole person in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, And I thought that was really, it really made me admire the Marines more than I did already. And mm. I already admire all the armed services. So, yeah, yeah. you know, but I really appreciated what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then um, another indication of the power of the individual um, was when uh, Papa passed away. Oh. Um, I highlighted a, a thing um, because his mom turned for the worse. Oh boy! Uh, yeah, yeah, she she started to really go down a bad path, um, but Papa's death turned a semi-functioning addict into a woman unable to follow the basic norms of adult behavior. In this way, Papa's death permanently altered the trajectory of our family. That was a, mm-hmm. a really powerful sentence. Mm-hmm. Permanently altered the trajectory of our family. Um, so yeah, I. 
um, I just thought that that was, in, you know, it kind of cemented this idea of how important individuals are to each other. Um, oh, and, yeah. and then it made me think of, okay, well, he's describing this culture and describing his family situation. Um, and I can imagine people with worse family situations even. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was no papa, there was no mama <laughs> mm-hmm. and, uh, or functioning, uh, folks at, you know, in those positions in your life. Right. And, um, wow, how difficult it would be for a person, um, who doesn't have any support. Oh yeah. Um, well, and, and think of mama, yeah. he said, would give, uh, charity food mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah. To the children in the neighborhood around her who she could see weren't getting enough to eat or yeah. enough attention and love. Right. And, uh, you know, I don't think of Mama as being the most sweet, loving person because she's portrayed exactly as she is. Right. She's a tough old hillbilly lady. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But she cares about those kids and her kind of love is the only love some of these kids are getting. Absolutely. And and it is is this really strange thing, you know, because there was a scene I remember where – as a young person, so uh, J.D. Vance, the author, is is really young. He was in a pharmacy or something and uh, got kicked out because he was playing with a toy. Oh. And now he's outside the place and uh, Mama and Papa come by and they're like, okay, let's go in here. And he says, well, I can't go in there. I was kicked out. Oh, my gosh. And it immediately is like they snap, you know, not knowing any of the situation. They go in there and start throwing crap around and – just yeah, breaking uh, things, breaking things, just being, yeah. He picked up that toy Papa and said, is this yeah. the toy that he was playing with? And the guy said, yes. And he threw it on the ground and broke it. And it was and just like grabbing the guy by the collar gosh, and yeah. screaming at him. And oh, if you Mama's ever touch going my through family, this for, yeah. Yeah. Trashing things. Right. And, and so um, the same people that are doing that and fighting with each other, as in there was another scene <laughs> where, Mama poured gasoline on him and wanted to light him and on fire. set him on fire. Right. I thought she did set she him did on set fire. She did set him on fire, but they put him out before it hurt him. Right. So and this is when they like, were younger. Gosh. They evidently mellowed some when they oh, got older. Oh, man. You know, so you're just like. they didn't live together. That, and yeah. these, these are the people that he's looking to for guidance as a young person. And they were somehow giving it. Um Amazing. He did say they looked at their own children, he thinks, and realized mm-hmm. how much they had failed them. So they were trying to help the grandchildren. Yeah. And that, that and I think that's that thing. That feels like a dynamic older, I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. You get older, you calm down and gain some wisdom. Um, and, and so one thing about this book, so we're talking about all this um, powerful storytelling about, you know, being poor and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and all that kind of thing. But I was surprised at actually how much hope is portrayed in the book. Mm. And that's because he's looking back and stopping to give these little asides, as you say. And it's not, if only I had known, but it's just like, here's what I realize now. Uh I was a little bit annoyed at how, you know, some of the people that I saw that were having trouble with the book called it self-congratulatory. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, Because I I felt like he was, the the hope is what he's trying to portray here. He's he's like, you you can, you can get out of here if you want to. And, And in fact, it's tragic in itself that getting out of there is what everybody wants, you know. Um, Right. It's just tragic and sad. Um but i didn't 
you know, of course I've had a wonderful life. I can't deny, you know, (laughs) so I'm sitting here from my perspective looking at that, but I felt like he was saying, come on, this is, this is how, uh, I think we can get out of here. I think also for it to be self-congratulatory, he would not be offering so much, uh, understanding and forgiveness to some of these very difficult people. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's doing when he's kind of looking back and making little comments. So I was really amazed at the amount of forgiveness and forbearance he's able to give his mother by the end of the book. And of course, he's not feeling that way the whole way through. But by the end, he's kind of going, okay, I, I can take you to this hotel. Mm-hmm. I can give you a small amount of money for this. I can help get you into somewhere that can maybe help you try to kick your habit or... We can just control the amount of money that you have. And he kind of realizes she's going to continually fail probably, but he's not going to give up on her. Mm. And he doesn't have unrealistic expectations. And he, in that way, he's showing his love. He doesn't have this gooey sort of unrealistic love. He's trying to help her. And and there's this forgiveness also. Mm-hmm. And going, she's not a terrible person. You know, he's actually saying that by the end of the book. He's like, she was caught up in all this and she couldn't handle it. And she still can't handle it. She's been kind of, and he doesn't use these words, but basically basically she's been broken. And he's hopeful, though, that she can still find a way to find her way out of it. Um, And I'm making it sound maybe more sappy than it is because he doesn't give it tons and tons of space. But it's there. And I was really impressed by that. And Everybody, as you say, everybody's always looking for a way out for more normalcy, but they don't want to let go of their culture of honor, which means that no matter what, if somebody insults somebody you love, you have to go beat them up. Or, I mean, it's, you know, it's these codified responses that, you know, honor and loving your family and sticking up for them are all fine. But the codified response of violence to that is the wrong thing. Mm, How do you kind of redirect and relearn it? And that's kind of a lot of what he's talking about in this book. And, you know, when we talk about uh, drug addiction, he he questions the idea of drug addiction as a disease, Mm -hmm. um, which which is similar to what he's talking about as, you know, poverty as a – as a like a permanent state, right? Yeah. So it's almost like he was he was questioning the idea of – if 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 drug addiction is a disease, then just as I wouldn't judge a cancer patient for a tumor, so I shouldn't judge right. a narcotics narcotics addict for her behavior. So, and he says, at thirteen, I found this absolutely absurd. <laughs> and um, you know, and mom and yeah. I often argued whether her newfound wisdom was scientific truth or an excuse for people whose decisions destroyed a family. Um, That's the learned I mean, helplessness so again, right? Yeah. I mean, it's 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 brutal. Um, yeah, well, and, and I don't know. It's just and and that idea spills over into the poverty idea. I feel like in his thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny because it makes me think of um, Stephen Tobolowski from the Tobolowski Files. Yeah, and. I'd forgotten this till my husband reminded me the other day, long ago in his, you know, 80 something episodes, he talks about being a cocaine addict. Mm. You know, I don't know if you remember that episode, but he Mm. was in LA, he had lots of money, he'd been partying, he fell into this, and he finally realized, 
crud, I'm a cocaine addict. Hmm. What am I going to do? And it was <laughs> interfering with his life and everything. And I'd have to re-listen to it to get the essence of it. But hmm. the essence of it was, what would I like more than I would like this cocaine? Hmm. Yeah. And he gradually was able to wean himself off. And he would do it because he loved good clothing. But I'm spending all this money here that if I could have this thing instead, hmm, if I use a little less cocaine, I'll have a little more money I can save up for mm. that. And that's how he did it. Wow. But I look at um, addiction and I think, of course, there are often so many other things wrong that you have to kind of work with in your life, um, whether it's, you know, family history, loneliness, whatever. And I could see there being a genetic component, but I think aren't we all kind of addicted to something? Yeah, for sure. I, and some things yeah, are less it, destructive than others, but yeah. Right. To where we give it more emphasis and let it have free sway in our lives than other people would. And for some people it's pornography for some people it's alcohol or drugs. And for me, mine is fairly benign. Um, and so I am often so grateful that it's not cigarettes or um, alcohol <laughs> yeah. or because I know exactly where my weak spot is and exactly where I've had a terrible day and I turn to this thing. And so um, I look at those people and just think I could see falling into an abyss like that. I just am grateful. I was given such a small problem to wrestle with. And, and in that sense, it's not a disease as much as um, original sin. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not how you treat it in terms of helping people get over it, but that's the big picture, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know that you know this about me, but I am an ex smoker. Oh, I didn't know that. Probably 20 years ago, I stopped. Oh. But yeah, it was. How did you do it? I, I can, uh, you get to a point, well, being smoker is hard nowadays, right? Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's Society hard to even find a place. It. So yeah, so it, it's hard to find a place. So that was one thing. But the other, the, I think the thing that helped me most is I kept telling myself, well, I'm going to quit this for now. Somehow I managed to talk myself into that. I'm mm -hmm. just going to not do it this week and maybe next week I'll have one. Right. Oh, and then, okay. then it became two weeks and it was like, yeah. You know, I'm not really quitting forever. I'm just quitting for right now. <laughs> ah, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then it just weeks became months and then months became years and, and that. Oh, I good still for you. yeah. And and you know, you talk about people so I, I do understand again, you know, this you know, smoking is harmful. I mean mm -hmm. but but it's not like it's not like no. cocaine addiction or heroin or something no. like that. But I do understand um when someone says this never leaves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it never leaves. There, there are times and situations where you suddenly go, oh, man, I would really like a cigarette. I really would just love one right now, you know. And, right. and it just comes out of nowhere, you know, and you're just it, – it's amazing wow. how powerful it is sometimes. Um, yeah. So I do understand that. And I wanted to um, – at the end of this thing, I was just looking at it, this paragraph that I just talked about. He said something I just thought was fantastic. Um, so he said, again, I'll just start at the beginning again. Drug addiction was mm -hmm. a disease. And just as I wouldn't judge a cancer patient for a tumor, so I shouldn't judge a narcotics addict for her behavior. At 13, I found this patently absurd. And mom and I often argued whether her newfound wisdom was scientific truth or an excuse for people whose decisions destroyed a family. Oddly enough, it's probably both. 
research does reveal a genetic disposition to substance abuse, but those who believe their addiction is a disease show less of an inclination to resist it. Mm-hmm. Mom was telling herself the truth, but ju- the truth was not setting her free. I liked That's how he put that. That's the psychological motivation. Right. Or lack of it. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, what's interesting to me is all the people, <laughs> for all the people who are addicts, there are people who are trying to help them get off of it or are suffering because of it mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, it affects everyone in their lives. And one of the most interesting people to me who had this experience was C.S. Lewis, who his best friend was his brother Warner. And he was what they called at the time a dipsomaniac. So mm-hmm. he was an alcoholic and he could stay on the wagon. And he wrote evidently some real seminal work on a certain period of French history that's like still a big reference work and all this stuff. And uh, they lived in the same house together for a really long time and maybe until Warner died. And he though would go off every so often for these week vacations by the seashore and just blow out Mm. sometimes to the point where, you know, C.S. Lewis would have to go get him out of the hospital. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so what he said in a about this situation, what C.S. Lewis said was alleviating the sufferings of an invalid who will never be quite well until the resurrection, the importance of not being earnest, hmm. like of not taking it so seriously that it, it, what he was getting at was you can't let it destroy your relationship with the person if you can at all maintain it, that kind of Mm. thing. Because he loved his brother. If he let his brother's alcoholism define who his brother was for him, it would have ruined everything for both of them. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. It does make sense, yeah. Yeah. And I think about it because um, I, my father, was an alcoholic, especially, well, at the end of his life. And um, my mother also. Mm-hmm. But hers now is managed because she lives with us. <laughs> yeah. And by doing that, she's on one level, I know we never talk about it. And on one level, she's frustrated, I'm sure. But she's kind of accepted the fact that she gets a glass of wine in the evenings. And on the weekends, we have a cocktail. Mm-hmm. This is just how it is in our house. This is how we live. And she's going to live with us. And, um, you know, it's it's enough. When I look at how it was before, this is the thing where you love someone and you hate that weakness in them, but you still love them. Because hmm. a lot of people are like, you you still let her have a glass of wine? I'm like, well, you know, I'm not a monster. Hmm. It's not harming her any, you know. And it's yeah. not like she's like, where is it? Where is it? It's just the understanding. Yeah. And that's just uh, a tiny, tiny taste of God's love for us, too. Right. Well, yeah, it's that, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. She, if she wanted to turn it down, she could, if she, um, and she's not going to, I get it. Um, and I'm not expecting that, but I would go back and forth sometimes between just hating that, you know, mm-hmm. but see now she, because she would, um, especially when she moved in, she'd be worried about getting that glass of wine. 
overeager. Mm-hmm. And it would really upset me because I was like, I hate to see her in the grip of this. But, you know, gradually I kind of came to terms with, but I love her. I love all these other things. She can't help this flaw. And she's 86. She can't help it now. Hmm. Um, and she has come to trust us more. Yeah. The glass of wine's always going to be there if she wants it early in the day. I mean, you know, like after lunch or something. Okay. She never does. Mm-hmm. But it's it's the fine balance of how does everybody live with the people in their who are destructive somehow in their lives. And I that's why I really was touched by JD's eventual coming to terms with how to deal with his mother effectively. Yeah. As an adult. Right. Yeah. And that is powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He could have just let it go. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. But he didn't do mm-hmm. that. He didn't do that. Yeah. Right. And that's something yeah. positive that probably came from his, uh, his culture as well. Right. Yeah. It's family. Right. And you stick with your family. The same way that uh, his grandpa went into that shop and threw that toy down. It's almost right. like a, a more healthy <laughs> manifestation of the exact same impulse. Yep. Yeah, I guess that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I also like the idea of when he brings up who will never be quite well until the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, that goes and for that's all like, us, oh, right? they will be well. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so will we. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. Um, yep. all the things we all struggle with and all the things that we suffer because we watch them or help try to deal with, you know, the results of an addiction somewhere in the family or whatever. Um, the resurrection will heal everything. Mm-hmm. Isn't that wonderful? It is wonderful. It is wonderful. Yeah. And he doesn't, um, J.D. Vance doesn't specifically talk about that in terms of his hopefulness, but I did find it interesting that he brings up several places where he was looking for faith. Hmm. He was looking for God. And yeah. so when he goes to live with his real father, that guy <laughs> <laughs> he has got a whole new life. It's a very quiet, normal life. He's kind of, he's in a church that's a little more restrictive than I would want to be, very much like J.D. Vance kind of expresses. Like, he doesn't really love that he listens to super loud metal music or whatever <laughs> or um, that kind of thing. But it, it's the life that you can see J.D. Vance going, I'd like this. And he says sometimes, I wanted religion. Mm-hmm. I wanted faith, so I was really interested in this. And I thought that inner urge um, also has to be a part of his journey also. I mean, in addition to everything else. Yeah, yeah. And I did love where he goes. Um, there's one point where he's he's talking about, he goes, well, you know, uh, Mama also had faith. She felt like God never left our side, and I would like to read this one thing. Oh, cool. um, yeah. This cracked me up. This was so mama. By then, I knew her well <laughs> enough. I'm like, oh, mama. Um, it says, by mama's reckoning, God never left our side. He celebrated with us when times were good and comforted us when they weren't. During one of our many trips to Kentucky, mama was trying to merge onto the highway after a brief stop for gas. She didn't pay attention to the signs. So we found ourselves headed the wrong way on a one-way exit ramp with angry motorists (laughs) swerving out of our way. I was screaming in terror. But after a U-turn on a three-lane interstate, the only thing Mama said about the incident was, we're fine, goddammit. Don't you know Jesus rides in the car with me? (laughs) 
<laughs> oh man. Oh. And it says the theology she thought was unsophisticated, but it provided a message I needed to hear. To coast through life was to squander my God-given talent, so I had to work hard. I had to take care of my family because Christian duty demanded it. I needed to forgive, not just for my mother's sake, but for my own. I should never despair for God had a plan. Hmm. Yeah. Very good. So, yeah, yeah. So I've got another thing highlighted here. Um, it says, when I look back at my life, what jumps out is how many variables had to fall in place in order to give me a chance. Yeah. There was my grandpa's or grandparents' constant presence, even when my mother and stepfather moved far away in an effort to shut them out. Despite the revolving door of would-be father figures, I was often surrounded by caring and kind men. Even with her faults, mom instilled in me a lifelong love of education and learning. My sister always protected me even after I'd physically outgrown her. Dan and Aunt Wee opened their home when I was too afraid to ask. Long before that, they were my first real exemplars of a happy and loving marriage. There were teachers, distant relatives, and friends. Remove any of these people from the equation, and I'm probably screwed. <laughs> Then he says, mm -hmm. other people who have overcome the odds cite the same sorts of interventions. So um, what I read in that paragraph is love. That's yes. just, that whole thing could just be replaced by that one word. It's just yeah. people's love for each other, uh, people's love for this author um, helped him get what he needed to move on. Mm-hmm. Community, yeah. community, right? And he wanted that. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the story of his sister, too, who took care of him like a mother when his own mother wasn't um, because his sister was older. And she fought her way into a happy marriage, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. yeah. And she also struggled, obviously, with a lot of the things he did, too. But her husband for one thing, didn't come from the same background. So he'd go, why are you so angry all the time? You know, why can't you just, I just said this, let's have a yeah. conversation. And so he kind of helped her work out of it. And it's that, again, somebody who loves you. But it's it's also the idea that um, we all want something better mm. for ourselves and for the people we love. Yeah, yeah. Willing the good of the other, right? Right. That's what we want. Yeah. Well, yeah, and what I was reminded of, um, you read a great poem by uh, about St. Luke. Was that it? Um, uh, or not yeah, poem. Yeah, it's a little prayer. <laughs> Let yeah. me start over. Uh -huh. What I was reminded of is you read a wonderful prayer um, about St. Luke before we started. And uh, talking about St. Luke's love of the poor. And it reminded me, God loves the poor. Mm. You know, yeah. Jesus said the poor are always with us, but who was Jesus helping most mm -hmm. of the time? He was talking about the rich needing to help the poor. And, of course, what we all argue about when we say, you know, people didn't agree with it, the thing we all have to remember is we all want the same thing. We want to help the poor. We want to help these people have better lives. It's, we disagree on how to do it, and they mm -hmm. don't like his personal story of how he did it. Um, yeah, yeah. They see it as counterproductive to their efforts. But it doesn't mean they don't have that same desire. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and God loves the poor, and uh, the poor are not always easy. That's the other thing the book shows us, this quote that it, I was reminded reading it of a quote that Dorothy Day had. Mm. And Dorothy Day, 
I'm trying to think a uh, quick yeah. description of her. She's mm. um, early a uh, convert to the church who always, I read her book, The Long Loneliness. That's her yeah, autobiography. I read uh, Loaves and Fishes. Okay. Yeah. And she's got a journal that I love um, of a year of her life. It's a year of her diary, and I can't remember the name right now. But The Long Loneliness, reading about her life before she became Catholic, it is clear that from young days, she just had a love of the poor. Hmm. And it showed me, I was like, I don't understand loving the poor. I understand loving people and, and wanting to help them out. of. But this love of the poor, oh, you're poor, let me help you. Just I love helping the poor. She had it from mm. early, early days. But And so after she became Catholic, she helped start the social worker publication. She was almost a socialist, really, in a lot of things, while being a very devout, faithful Catholic. And um, But she'd be down there, hands-on helping the poor, and she'd get these dewy-eyed new uh, volunteers who are like, I want to help the poor. And she'd go, okay, there are two things you should know about the poor. They tend to smell, and they are ungrateful. <laughs> Talk about the realism nobody wants to hear. Yeah. And that's people revere Dorothy Day because she was hands-on, got in there, helped the poor, um, would go to jail during strikes and all this kind of stuff. But she would, I think, approve of this book. Hmm. He he is showing a love for the people around him. He understands what it is to be poor. He's not hiding the truth of his life. Hmm. You know. Yeah. And yeah. he's talking about where he sees that reflected in things other people have written that people do approve of in people's lived experiences. Who he goes, wow, that person's life is like mine. Across cultures. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so, and she was all about showing love and this guy's about, you know, loving your family. The reason he wrote the book, I think, is he wanted to help others like him. I think That's so too. Love. Yeah. I think so too. Because he put himself out there mm -hmm. by doing that. Nobody he knows mm -hmm. in his life now as a lawyer who went to Yale Law School necessarily knows that about him. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I... It all kind of hangs together. I know I'm being kind of disjointed about it, but no, I think it does. I think, yeah, I I agree with you. You know, there was a purpose to his writing of the book, and and it was, um, really this conversation. I think it, it's like, okay, what are we doing as government? What are we doing as people for each other? And here's my story, and what can we learn from it in order to make those things better? Um, yeah, he says we have to stop blaming uh, Obama and Bush mm -hmm. and ask what we can do to make yeah. things better. Right. And I have to say, I have an experience in my own life right now of our family has been working with this person who definitely is in dire need. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> talk about a difficult person. I think Dorothy Day would really understand. And it's like you're trying, you're helping them in spite of themselves a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And what it's showing me is not only is this person getting help, but it's showing me a deeper look at myself. And all of us are talking about this a lot as Christians. Mm. Who are we as Christians? We're helping her because we do love Jesus. He says, you help the least of us, uh, the least person, then you're helping me. Well, that's what we want to do. But you don't expect that person 
to not be grateful and like it and everything. And in that case, where are you doing it? Mm. And then you have to look at yourself again and you have to look deeper and you have to go, am I doing this because I love God? Am I doing it because I want praise? What do I expect? Why do I have expectations? I mean, and it's hands-on is real different than sitting and talking about it like we're doing now Mm -hmm. or, um, oh, I make a dinner for the supper club that takes it to the AIDS hospice every month. I do do things. I do Mm -hmm. things. (laughs) I collect stuff and I take it to St. Vincent de Paul. But, you know, getting hands-on with even a single person who needs that help. And in J.D. Vance's case, I would say that's his mother. Mm Mm-hmm. That's tough. Right. Yeah. You really learn how far you fall from the ideals. You get another glimpse of who you are. And you also, um, as you, when you said you have a good life, and I'm like, boy, do I have a good life. Mm-hmm. I am so blessed. Mm-hmm. It, it puts a new focus on um, the things you think are ordinary are not ordinary. They are blessings. Beautiful. Yep. Well put. J.D. Vance, thanks for writing this. Yeah. This was a glimpse into a world I wouldn't have seen. And, um, yep, I thought I thought it was just uh, very well done, very thought-provoking, which I think was the purpose. Yeah. So. And I guess with uh, thanks, I didn't pick up for this reason, but with Thanksgiving coming. Yeah. Yep. And families and uh, Christmas coming and mm-hmm. Advent with the Incarnation and why did Jesus come? Jesus came because of the family in this book. Yeah. We right. all have. Mm-hmm things that we need that God is here to help us with. And that's, he came here to show us in person. Hmm. Absolutely. Um, Yep. Yeah. Agreed. Yep. That is, that is good timing and a good reminder, but thank you for selecting it. Um, Oh, I'm glad. I'm really happy to have read it. Yep. Very happy to have read it. I'm glad. All right. So what is next for us? Won't you be my neighbor is what next is next for us. <laughs> I guess I was in a real uh, hands-on, personal uh-huh. kind of a <laughs> there you go. mood when I picked I love that, it. the book and this next movie, which is yeah. a documentary about Mr. Rogers. Right, I, um, so that's the documentary, not the movie. Yes, if, right? if I pick the wrong one, do not watch the one with Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, watch the one that's about Mr. Rogers, really Mr. Rogers. And the whole time I was watching the Tom Hanks movie, which is a perfectly fine movie, except I found out most of the reporter's experience was fabricated, which, so why make it? Um, (laughs) I was wishing I was watching this documentary again, and that's why I picked it. Oh, great. Good. I'm looking forward to it. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, Have a great two weeks, everybody, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 